Yeah, again, I want to welcome you to our gathering today. Glad to be gathering together. As we get settled in, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Esther chapter 6. We'll be looking at one verse in Esther 6 today, and then the entirety of Esther chapter 7. As we continue our time in this book, um, looking at Esther's second feast with Xerxes and Haman. Uh, before I say that, uh, man, I want to thank Seth and Caitlin and the rest of the worship team for leading us this morning. Um, yeah. It's those crazy moments that uh, I've known Seth literally since he was born. Uh, he is from my hometown. Uh, his dad was my student pastor growing up, uh, one of the most imp- impactful men uh, that I've had in my life. And so, uh, man, glad to have them. They'll be here this week and next week. Uh, and so, yeah, I guess since uh, Seth is now in college, I'm old now. So uh, <laughs> it's crazy to think, but I guess it's happening. Uh, all right, so... As we enter into our time in Esther, what I want to do, I know that since we're two weeks into our new building, we've had a lot of visitors that uh, have come and joined. I mean, we're glad to have you here. And so what I want to do is I just want to remind us kind of where we've been uh, and then recap from our time last week. So as we've looked at Esther, uh, we've seen that Esther is a story of faith that reminds us that God's people are to have faith even when we don't see, hear, or feel Him. Our theme, and I believe it's up on the screen here, uh, the theme throughout this series is that God has you here for a purpose, and He will always keep His promises even when you and I feel that He's not there. The reason we call Esther this series unnamed is because God's name is not mentioned in this, the entirety of this book, although we do see Him at work, right? And so last week, as we uh, talked about that, as I laid out that theme again, I, I uh, you know, we looked at this story of, uh, of Haman uh, seeing Mordecai again and, and going and the king not being able to sleep and, and God's providence all throughout. But a question that I asked last week is what do we do in moments of struggle and hardship where we feel that God is silent? Maybe that God is not working to fulfill the purposes and promises we believe need to be fulfilled. And really, I gave us two options last week. There's really two things we can do. One, we can trust in self and say, I got this. I'm going to do this. I'll push through this, right? Anybody ever do that? Anybody ever do that this morning? Um, right? Uh, you know, but we all, like, we have those moments where we think, no, I, I think I can get it. it. It didn't work last time or the time before that or the time before that. But this time, I, I got it. Or... I think this is the correct answer. We can trust God. You see, I believe the response, whether it's trusting itself or God, the response says a lot about who defines those purposes and promises. You see, a lot of times when we're seeking our purpose, our promise, we're seeking to do it what? By ourselves. And so in that, in your life, as you wrestle with those questions and your response to it, is it God-defined or self-defined? Are you one that as you pray, you say, God, my will needs to be done and only my will needs to be done and it needs to look this way? 
Or do you carry a posture like Jesus who in the garden before going to the cross says, God, if there is another way, let it be, but not my will, but your will be done. And so last week in the story, we, we see some things playing out that I believe actually connect to if you pull back to the reality of the entirety of the story. And then if you pull that back further, you see that all of this is directing us to the entirety of the scriptures, which are in and of themselves providentially redemptive. But we saw in Esther last week uh, that, that God's hand of providence, although he is unnamed, his hand is in it over and over and over again. Providence, as I shared last week, is the way that God directs the flow of human history through the ordinary lives of individuals to fulfill his purposes and promises. And so what that means for us And we sang about this last week and I shared it last week multiple times. Is guess what? We know the end of the story. We know how the story ends. Therefore, our identity as believers, guess what? If you're a follower of Jesus, your identity is at rest no matter the situation or circumstance. Because guess what? Even in the midst of the the temptation to walk in fear or succumb to it or the wrestling and the weariness, guess what? We sing out, we pray out just what we sang. You are faithful still. I believe that we see this most vividly in the gospel. You see, Jesus' death was no defeat. Because it wasn't the end of the story. But rather, his death led to the victory of the resurrection that would change everything. You see, it's this gospel message, which we say the gospel is the good news story that Jesus defeated sin, death, and Satan through his life, death, and resurrection. It's that good news that produces in us as followers of Jesus not simply new life, but humbly dependent trust for both life and living. Here's what I mean by life and living. Life, we realize as followers of Jesus that we are in Christ. Guess what? There's no fear in death. Because he's defeated and we are in Christ. But it's not just about uh, that one thing. Guess what? It encompasses all of life. Because being in Christ transforms our living. You see, we are to live because, of, because we are in Christ, uh, redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We are to live radically different lives. I've shared this story before, but it's, you know, you're to look different if you're a follower of Jesus in the world around you. Drastically different. Not weird different. Sometimes. But you're to look drastically different. It would be as if, uh, it's like getting hit by a Mack truck, right? Like if you get hit by a Mack truck, you're not, you're gonna look different. You're, you'll never be the same. It's the same thing that happens when when the gospel takes root and brings life in a believer. He changes you from the inside out, every part. And so as believers, we should be the most generous people on the planet, the most celebratory people, the most engaging relational people. Now for the introverts in the room, you're like, say what? It's okay. You can be an introvert and still be relationally engaging. 
We should be the most honest, forgiving, and worship-filled people on the planet. You see, this is the good news reality of the finished work of the cross. But guess what? While it is finished, and while we are at rest in the now-not-yet reality of it, we are all still called to do hard things. We're all still called to do hard things that require faith that produces courageous obedience. You see, because while we are at rest, guess what? We are not called to sit back. Matthew 28, what does Jesus say? He says, go. He has all authority, therefore go and make disciples. You see, but the problem is, is as we all, again, if we're honest with ourselves, man, we as a people, we are suffering adverse, right? Like we don't want it, any of it. I believe that we've believed a lie at times is, is that, man, believers are never to suffer. Believers are never to experience hardship or to have hard things happen to them. But guess what? We're just lying to ourselves because daily we have to do hard things, do we not? I think at times, if we're not careful, because we so seek to avoid any type of suffering, and I don't mean that you should go out and look for it, is that we kind of move into these modes of escapism. You see, I believe that we're called to be present in the moment, all the while longing for Jesus to return and make all things new. And so when we think about this reality of having to do hard things, uh, there are, in our household, we have two sayings that get said a lot. One of the sayings is this. When things get hard, or when we don't want to do something difficult, Haley and I will look at each other and we'll say, oh, it's too harder. It, it's kind of a running joke in our house that when something happens, we'll look and say, it's just too harder. It's too harder. I, I don't want to do it. And while our kids may not say that form, like we hear it in their, both verbally and in their expressions when we ask them to pick up or clean up, they look at us and I'm like, that's a face that you're saying it's too harder. It's not. It's actually going to be a whole lot harder for you if you don't do that. So let's go ahead and do it. And so that's one saying. When parenting happens, we look at each other and say, oh, it's too harder. Matching the million pairs of socks each week because for some reason kids go through 17 pairs a day and they're all different for some other reason. I don't know why, but uh, we look at it and I, at times I'm like, oh, this is just too harder. The month-to-month setting of a budget and sticking with it, sometimes that's too harder. Going out for another activity after a long day of activities or a long week of activities, it's too harder. You see, we also have another saying in our house that gets said a whole lot is, hey, guess what? You can do hard things. In the midst of the lack of want or desire, there's a push to remember, hey, it may feel too hard, but you can do hard things. And so with our children at times, we meet them where they are, but we don't want them to shy away from doing hard things. And so we'll sit down and say, hey, I know you're feeling this way, or I know this is happening, but guess what? You can do hard things. 
We're a couple of weeks into school now, and our son James, I may have said this before, like at three days in, he's in kindergarten, he just breaks down one day, and we're like, what are you doing? He's like, I can't read. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, dude. <laughs> I didn't learn until I was in like fifth grade. So <laughs> you're doing good, man. Uh, like, you know your letters. Like, that's, you know, but in, like in his mind, I was like, he was like, I can't do it. I can't read. I don't want to. It's too hard. And they're like, no, no. Like, guess what? One, it's okay. You're only three days in. Two, you can do our things. You can do it. Like Haley says it to me all the time. Like she'll look at me. And whether verbally I express it or just my demeanor and expression or my posture, she'll look at me and she'll say, hey, I love you. But guess what? You can do hard things. But I don't want to. No, you can. You can do hard things, Kyle. I know, but no. You can do hard things. Guess what? I don't know if you know it or not, but although the tomb is empty and Jesus sits in all authority at the right hand of the Father, we still have to do hard things. Even things that feel too harder. You see, it's not just that we have to do hard things. We can do hard things. Not in our own strength, but by the power of the Spirit and the community of faith, the church. And I I think we, we need to note both of those things. Because we are indwelt, as if you're a follower of Jesus, you're indwelt with the Spirit of God, right? Empowered by the Spirit. But guess what? No solo Christians in the kingdom. You need community around you. You need people in the midst when you're saying it's too hard to say, no, no, no. You can do hard things. And guess what? I'm here alongside you. Exhorting you, encouraging you, praying for you. You see, we are called and commissioned to say and do things that require great courage. Jesus in John 16 tells his disciples something that holds true for us today when he said, look, in this world you will have what? Trouble, right? Tribulation, trouble, trials. Hard things will happen. But you're not to succumb to them. Or run from them, but rather you are to take heart knowing that He has overcome the world. And so today, in the face of whatever or wherever you find yourself, do you take heart knowing that God has not simply called you to endure hard things, but to live with courageous faith and radical obedience in the midst of them? And so my goal today as we look at the story of Esther is that we would be maybe empowered, reinvigorated to stand a little taller, not in pride, but in dependent humility to do hard things. Not for something, but in light of what we've received in Christ because He has paid it all. And because He has paid it all, we would go because guess what? You have nothing to lose. You have eternity already. You have the Spirit dwelling inside you. Like, you don't even have to wait for eternity. Like, he is, you are in Christ. And the reason I say all this right in, in this opening is because this is where Esther finds herself today. In the middle of what has and is a very hard thing. But what we find is that she has the courage to trust and even speak in the midst of a moment where God seems to be distant and nowhere to be found. And so let's begin by reading Esther 6.14. We're going to read through chapter 7, verse 6. While they were yet talking with him, 
That's Haman. The king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, King Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Okay, so as we dive into the text for today, I want to remind us quickly of two things. First, this is the second feast that Queen Esther has hosted for Xerxes and Haman. Remember, probably about three weeks ago, we saw that that, uh, Esther invites them to the first feast, and he asked a similar question. What's your wish? What's your request, Esther? And because she is wise and knows timing, but also, I believe, a bit of providence, she responds to the king with, Come tomorrow. I'm going to throw another feast, and then I'll answer you see, Esther is, is playing this role now. She's seeking to not simply gain Xerxes' attention, but she wants to make sure that he's serious about giving her the, the, the answer and the, the, the answer to his request. She wants to make sure if you'll come a second time, then I'll know you're willing to, whatever I say, you're going to give it. She wants to make sure he's serious about his promise. The second thing is this is following what we saw last week with Xerxes remembering the story of Mordecai, calling Haman in and asking him what should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. And Haman, who hates Mordecai and is building a 75-foot gallow for him to be uh, speared upon, uh, he says in fear to himself, who would the king delight in more than me? And then he just spews it all out. He lays out his desires and he says, man, give them your robe, give them your horse, parade them through town and proclaim to everyone, this is what happens to those the king delights to honor. Xerxes responds to Haman, he says, that's it. You go do it. Not, not, not you go do it for you, you go do this to Mordecai. And Haman is crushed. We saw at the end of our time last week the response of Haman's supposed friends who prophetically just rub salt in his already wounded life. But then what we see in verse 14 is that is that Haman's continued downfall moves right along. Because even while they're talking to him, the king's eunuchs arrive and it says they hurry Haman off to the feast. The wording there for hurried, that language carries the tone of he's being arrested and going somewhere. He, I don't believe he wants to go. And I believe that that's symbolic for what's about to come. It's symbolic that he's about to be drugged somewhere. He doesn't want to be. And so following this feast, 
At a time of drinking, the king again asks Esther a second time a set of questions. And this quest, these two questions will require her to respond with great courage. You see, these are two of the biggest questions ever, Esther will ever likely have to answer. The first thing the king says is, what is your wish? But don't miss, like, he doesn't just say, what is your wish? He says, hey, I want you, I'll grant it. And then the second part is, what is your request? And he says, it'll be fulfilled up to half the kingdom. Again, that's important because I believe both sides of that, not just the question, but his response in the midst of it shows the king means what he says. Although uh, it likely hopes that, that Esther's not going to say, okay, give me half the kingdom. And so the time has come. Place yourself in that moment as you look and, and, and just imagine what's taking place and going on. There's no more uh, prolonging. There's not a third feast to be had, right? Now's the time. And so how will Esther respond? I can only imagine the emotions that she's wrestling with in this moment. On the one hand, the king has shown up a second time and seems to be sincere in his willingness to respond. But guess what? If you've been with us through Esther, if you read Esther, like Xerxes, he's impulsive, he's emotional, and he has a tendency to get drunk and act like a fool, right? We see it over and over and over again. And so Esther finds herself in that tension of these questions that she's been asked, but also likely remembering the words of Mordecai who said, hey, maybe it was for such a time as this. And then her own response of, I'll do it, and if I perish, I perish. And the reality is, in this moment, she could perish. Because she knows Xerxes. I read a story this week that, Before Xerxes went to fight the Greeks, this man came to him, gave him a massive amount of money, hosted him in his house multiple times. And and so this guy was just laying like he was in like he had the thought he had the king in his right right hand. Because he had five sons that were getting ready to go to the war. And so he thought to himself, I've given him all this money. I brought him to my house multiple times. I'm going to ask him something. And he goes to King Xerxes and he says, hey. Will you just spare my five sons and let them not go to war? Xerxes looks at him and asks who his oldest son is. Goes and gets his oldest son and cuts him in half. Lays his body on the ground and as the army is marching out to go fight the Greeks, they walk through the parts. This is the king Esther's dealing with. This is the man she has married And so great courage would be needed if she's going to have the strength to confront the threat that lies before her. But not only before her, all of God's people. I think also we need to remember that Esther has held back her identity from Xerxes for five years. She hasn't shared who she really is. Esther in this moment is going to have to choose to take heart in the face of something that seems really, really hard. And she's going to have to do the hard thing even if she perishes. And so she makes her ask, and it's one of the most well-articulated and formulated asks in all the Bible. She says first, if I have found favor in your sight, 
You see, Esther, again, she knows Xerxes, she knows his ego, she knows his pride, but also she knows his position. And she seeks to honor the king. She wants to honor the king because she wants the king to find favor in her sight. But guess what? She already has favor in God's eyes. And I think we need to be reminded of that because in our own lives, we can honor those in authority because our faith is not ultimately in them, it's in God. He knows how the story ends. He holds the cards. And so we, we, we can uh, honor, but also know the one that, that, that we truly worship and honor. And so she lays out both her wish and her request, which is connected to the two questions that Xerxes asked. You see, she's ready to answer both. She says, this is my wish and this is my request. And her wish is this, that you would grant me my life. Now, I don't want us to think for a moment that Esther is hoping to save herself first and then, if possible, the people of God. Like, that's not what she's asking here. Rather, what Esther is doing, and we're going to see in a moment, is she is boldly connecting herself with the people of God who are threatened to be destroyed. And isn't that totally different than the culture we live in today? Like our culture is what? It's look out for who? Numero uno, right? Me. I had a friend one time that said he and his dad were hunting lions in the safari. And they were there and his dad was a bit older. And he, he, his dad leaned over to him and he was like, man, what if those lions just started chasing us? We'd have to run real quick and fast. And without missing a beat, my buddy, he just leaned over. He says, well, I just have to be faster than you, dad. Right? Like he, and the, he was, he was joking. But in the moment, he's like, hey, I gotta look out for me. I'm faster. I got this. You see, so often in life, and I don't believe it's just our culture. I believe that this is rooted in just the brokenness of our sin. That, that it, at our root we are selfish and have our desires and believe ourselves to be, man, the kings and queens of our kingdoms. But Esther in this moment, in, in, in saying this, she's about to connect herself to the people. So she makes her wish and then she makes her request. She says, my, quest, my request is for my people. She's asking for the rescue of an entire race. Again, tying herself back to her true identity, not as a Persian woman named Esther, but a Jewish woman whose real name is Hadassah and whose identity is found in God, not the reign of the Persian Empire in a position that she holds as queen. And so in your life, what say you? Is your identity rooted in what you do or who you are, the labels you have, or who Jesus says, man, you're a son or a daughter of the King? You see, this wish and request is tied together further. When Esther then says, she says, look, our people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. The descriptor, I believe, is taken deeper by saying, she says, look, if they simply would have been sold to slavery, I wouldn't have said a word. You see, this affliction is far greater than enslavement. This affliction is genocide. I think we could look at that and say, well, Esther, like, that's a little harsh, you know? Like, genocide's bad, but enslavement is bad too. Why allow that but fight against genocide? Both are bad. And the answer is yes. 
You see, I believe Esther understands the words that Jesus spoke in John 16 about trouble and taking heart far better than we do at times. Even if she came long before Jesus ever spoke those words. You see, in the moment, Esther understands that suffering is a natural part of the fall and can't ultimately be avoided. And so while to suffer enslavement is bad, genocide is a far worse reality. So again, I revert back to the problem in our lives. We want no suffering at all because we believe the lie that we are never to suffer. Maybe to you today, John 16, 33, about in this world you'll have tribulation and trouble, but to take heart is a verse that you know, but you don't take it to heart, and so you're not ready to take heart when trouble arises. And so Esther shares all this. And then Xerxes responds. He's awoken for a minute and his anger burns. He says, who is he? Point him out. Where is he? Who dares try and harm the queen and her people? But the crazy reality is that Haman is standing there while he's saying this. And if I could bet, I would say he probably sees the writing on the wall. He's probably looking for the nearest exit. Like the last two days of feasting have not gone how Haman thought they would. It's been the worst party ever. You see, before he can run, Esther takes the initiative and she points to Haman, exposing him for who he really is. She says, a a wicked foe, an enemy. And Haman is stuck in his tracks, mouth wide open, stricken with terror. So let's see how the story ends. Let's read verses 7 through 10. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. All right, so following everything that's transpired, the king needs a moment. And so he heads outside to breathe. But I want us to remember something about the king. Even in this, the king's rage and wrath is at its root. It's all about him. He he says he cares about Esther, but really what he's doing and what he's wrestling with is how can he save his own face because he's the one that made the edict in the first place. He's the one that set the law that said on this day you can destroy all Jews. While he removes himself from the situation, Haman takes the opportunity to beg for his life. Here we see that the proud in the end are always brought low. You see, this action doesn't produce what he wants. Because when the king returns, Haman's found to be lying on the couch where Esther was. 
There's an issue with that because men were not allowed, and in, in the pal- men were not allowed to be within seven feet uh, of the queen when the king wasn't in the room. But he's on the couch with her, begging for his life. And so the king walks in and he sees this, and guess what the king does? What he always does throughout this story, he overreacts a little bit because he immediately goes to assault. He doesn't know what's really happening, that Haman is begging for his life. And, but he goes there and he says, oh, this is what you're going to do? And then we get the bigger picture. And, and man, it, it, like, it almost gives you whiplash a little bit how fast things transpire, does it not? Haman's face is covered and he's sent and impaled on the very gallows he had built for Mordecai so that the wrath of the king was abated. Man, talk about a great reversal. Talk about a quick turn of events. Haman, the guy who had made himself the king's right-hand man in a matter of two days is humiliated, humbled, and killed. Just like that. And I think while we can sit back and celebrate the demise of a foe and an enemy, I think that Haman's story if we really reflect on it, has a lot more to say about our own lives than we would like to admit. Like as you think about your life, today are you living like Haman, believing that death is far off? See, when Haman walked in the room, he didn't think any of this was going to transpire. You believe that nothing can touch you, hold you back, or that what you have cannot be removed from you in an instant. And along with that today, what are you living for? Not simply what are you living for, like who are you living for? Where are you seeking fulfillment and happiness? Where does your hope find its root and its rest? You see, at its root... Will the place that you find hope and happiness, will it last? Or will it, like Haman's life, be snatched away in a moment? I think if we're honest, we all have to admit that we spend, spend or have spent much of life chasing things that maybe don't matter. Things that don't satisfy, that don't bring life. We, like Haman, are all born into sin that leads us to seek the glory of self over the glory of God. Our tendency is to make ourselves the center of our worlds instead of God. You see, what happens in this story is that when faced with the reality of his brokenness and his sin and his own mortality, Haman looked around for a savior and didn't find one. But guess what? Your story doesn't have to end up like Haman's. You see, the story of redemption in the Scriptures points us to the one who would come, who would be greater than Esther. For while Esther came and risked her life to save herself and God's people, Jesus came and gave His life in our place in order to save His enemies. Jesus came and put on flesh. He identified Himself with the broken people who in the end did not praise Him, but crucified and cursed Him. While Haman was... Hung on the gallows. Jesus was hung on the cross. I mean, not even Roman citizens were hung on the cross. It was the worst of the worst. 
They crucified and cursed Him. And yet, hear this, instead of allowing God to destroy them so that His wrath might be abated, Jesus allowed Himself to be crucified. Jesus, as He was spit upon, as He was struck, as He was cursed at, did not cry out, Look God, my enemies, my foes. Rather, He cried out, Father, forgive them. And then He took all of God's wrath upon Him. And when it was all upon Him, He said, It is finished. Done. Forever. So that we might have life through Him. You see, this is the good news of hope that's found in the gospel today and every day. And so how do we respond to this? Well, first... Today, if you find yourself sitting here and you're like, man, I don't know Jesus. I'm doing it all for self. Today, you know, like, hey, if it was all snatched away and taken away, man, I've been living for me and me alone. Man, turn to Jesus today as the one who can save you. He's the only one who can save you. Quit living like Haman. Repent and receive forgiveness. If you want to know what that means, I want to talk about that, and you can come talk to me after we get done today. I'd love to talk to you about what that means. But today, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to call you to go and do hard things. To live an open-handed life that says, hey... Wherever you have me, whatever's going on, have your way with me, Lord. Move. Use me. I encourage you to go and proclaim the good news, even when it requires you to do hard things that seem too harder. Guess what? You can do hard things. You may not like it all the time, But you can do hard things. Not because of you, but because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Oh, that we would live radically dependent lives. That this reality that, that we, life in Christ is so deeply ingrained in the, to the fabric of who we are, not simply as image bearers, of God, but as those that have been redeemed by God, that it would change the way we live. And that we would sacrifice. That we would celebrate. And that we would proclaim the one who came when we were his foe. Scripture says we were enemies. Against God. And He came and He died for us. That's a king worth proclaiming. 
And so that's what I want to invite you to today. I'm going to have the team come back up. Today, if you don't know Jesus, I'm going to invite you to respond, to turn to Him today in repentance and faith. Again, if you want to know more about that or what that looks like and what it even means, come talk to me. Or maybe you know one of our partners in here. Talk to them. Ask them. And then I want to invite you to respond simply by prayerfully considering what it looks like for you to just go and proclaim the goodness of a king. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to have Jim and Tim. They're going to come up and they're going to present the elements. We're going to share in communion together and following sharing in communion corporately as a body as we remember what Jesus has done. We're going to sing. We're going to sing and cry out just the gratitude that we have because of Christ. So today, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to come and share in the elements, the bread and the cup. Take it back to your seat and I'll read us through the taking of it together. If you're not, we would ask that you not partake, not to cast you aside or ostracize you or anything like that. But we believe, even as we shared today, man, this was costly. And so as we remember it, we remember it not simply as the sacrifice, we remember that we are called to be living sacrifices as image bearers of Jesus. And so I'll pray and then you can move forward. If you'll just make your way down the center if possible and go back through the sides. Jesus, we thank you that you came. That you came and you died for your enemies. Those who were far off, that you came that you dwelt among us, that you put on flesh, and that you died and rose again. God, if there's someone here today that doesn't know that good news, doesn't understand, hasn't cried out to you in repentance and faith, that today would be the day of salvation, not tomorrow. God, for those in the room today that uh, are wrestling with maybe a a hard season or just the reality of the day-to-day harder things of life, that that they would be encouraged that because they have your Spirit in them, that they can have faith and that they can do hard things. Not in their own strength, but by your strength. May they be encouraged, but also may it reinvigorate each one of us as we come in and rest in the security of who we are in you, God, that as we prepare to celebrate and then leave, that we would leave in the same security, but that we would be so bold in it. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.